Good morning. You know, the Bible seems to abound in difficult names. Names like Nebuchadnezzar, Sennacherib, Abel Beth Ma'aka, Maher Shalal Hajbaz. Today we're going to look at an obscure individual back in 2 Samuel chapter 9 with a tongue twister name, Mephibosheth. And if you're not familiar with Mephibosheth, you're in for a treat. Because if you're a believer here today, this is your story. David, the man after God's own heart, is a picture to us of Jesus. And Mephibosheth is a picture of you and me. This is a story of grace. Now, I believe grace is the most important concept in the whole Bible. You say, well, Dan, that's a pretty strong statement. Well, I believe that because if you don't grasp grace, you can't be right with God. Because grace is the basis for our relationship with Him. And if you don't grasp grace, you can't have consistent victory over sin. Because you will struggle with guilt, you will lack joy, you will lack motivation in serving God. God's grace is not some stuffy theological doctrine that you are to file away in your set of Bible notes under G. Grace is the most practical, beautiful truth in all of God's Word. And it must be the core of your daily experience with God. And this morning, I want us to look at three principles about grace that we learn from David and Mephibosheth. And if you look at the back of your bulletin, I've got an outline there with these three principles. Principle number one, grace seeks us where we're at. Now let me just establish the setting for this story. David killed Goliath with the sling and the stone and became an instant hero with the people. In fact, when they were coming back from the victory over Goliath and the Philistines, the women came out in 1 Samuel 18.7 and sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, as you can imagine, that was a not, not a real popular song with Saul. In fact, he hated that song. All he heard from that song was that David was ten times better than him. And so he threw spears at David. He chased David all over the countryside trying to kill him. He was obsessed with seeing David dead. But as we saw last week, David was a guy who had learned to wait on God's timing and work through God's training. And so he was patient. And David never retaliated. He never struck back. When Saul threw a spear, he never picked it up and threw it back. He had many opportunities to kill Saul, and he never did. But finally, Saul died in battle, and David became the king. And he was instantly a very popular, strong, mighty king. And when everything was running smoothly, he had conquered many armies, he had expanded his borders, he had built a beautiful palace in Jerusalem, he had control of that part of the world. He began to say, I wonder about Saul's family. And so he asked a question in chapter 9 and verse 1. 
It says, Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul? Now I'm sure those in his court when they heard this said, It's about time. We're going to have the big purge. Because at that time, eastern monarchs came to the throne and they immediately killed all their competition. They would go to the house of Saul, all those in the lineage of Saul who were in the line to be the king, and they would have all of those individuals killed. And so David asked the question, is there anybody left in the house of Saul? And they would immediately think, this is it, he's going to wipe out that family. But David throws them a curve. Because notice the rest of the question. Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And then verse 2, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Now can I make a real obvious point right at the outset? David sought out Mephibosheth. He didn't wait for Mephibosheth to show up. Mephibosheth was not seeking favor from David. Mephibosheth had not turned in an application to be considered for a place in the palace. In fact, quite the opposite. He was hiding from the king when David found him. And that's true of you and me. God initiates the relationship. He doesn't wait around for you and me to come to Him. In fact, not only do we not come to God, the fact is we can't come to God. God's grace seeks us out and finds us where we're at. C.S. Lewis in his book Christian Reflections puts it this way. He says, I never had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way around. He was the hunter and I was the deer. He stalked me, took unerring aim, and fired. And I am very thankful that this is how the first conscious meeting occurred. It forearms one against subsequent fears that the whole thing was only wishful thinking. Something one didn't wish for can hardly be that. Now notice three things about where David found Mephibosheth, which is a parallel to where God found you. First of all, he was born into the wrong family. Mephibosheth was born into the family of Saul. Saul was his grandfather and Jonathan was his father, so he was not in the royal family of David. He was a member of the ousted kingdom. He was technically an enemy of the new regime. And that's exactly the problem that you and I have. We are born into the wrong family. We are born into the family of Adam. We're always interested in who's related to us. Well, let me tell you something. We're all related. 
We all go back, if we go back far enough, we are the great, 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 great grandson or granddaughter of Adam. In fact, the Bible gets more specific. It says your father is the devil and you are in the kingdom of darkness. It says in Ephesians 2.3 that we are by nature children of wrath. We are born into the wrong family. Second thing about Mephibosheth, he was crippled by a fall. Notice the end of verse 3. It says he's crippled in both feet. Now we're told how that happened in 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4. It tells us that when Mephibosheth's father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul were killed in battle, that the nurse that was taking care of Mephibosheth grabbed him up and ran for fear because she knew that the new monarch would typically kill him and he was the next in line to the throne. He was only five years old. She picked him up and took off running with him and in her haste, she dropped him. Now, I assume he probably broke both legs or broke both ankles. And in that day when they didn't have the medical care to set the bones, he grew with crippled legs. And I think the spiritual parallel is obvious. Just as Mephibosheth once walked with his father, so man originally walked with God. But sin came and man suffered a fall which left him as a permanent, spiritual, cripple, alienated from God. You see, when Adam fell, we fell. And we are crippled spiritually. Which means that you and I cannot normally and naturally walk with God. We are spiritually crippled. And then thirdly, he was living in a barren land. When David asked, where is he? He's told in verse 4 that he is in Lodabar. Now that phrase, low in the Hebrew, means no. Dabar in the Hebrew means green pastures or green fields. So he's living in a place where it is not possible to grow grass or crops or fruit. He's living in a place where there's just dust and tumbleweeds. Now, why is Mephibosheth living in Lodabar? Well, the answer is because he's afraid of the king. In fact, in verse 7, when David meets him, he says immediately to him, do not fear. Lodabar, if you look on a map and can even find it, is an obscure place way north of Jerusalem and across the Jordan River. So Mephibosheth is staying as far away from David as he can get. He is far away from the king's fruitfulness, the king's food, the king's riches. He's living in a barren land. And meanwhile, David wants to have fellowship with him. Isn't that a picture of you and me? We tend to live as far away from God as we can get. We think he's angry at us. We live in a barren land where there's no fruitfulness, no crops. We're afraid of the king. We don't want him to even be looking for us. And yet he is. You know, before we come to Jesus Christ, we are all like Mephibosheth. We're in the wrong family. We're crippled by a fall. And we are living in a barren place where there is no 
fruitfulness. And the beautiful truth is that grace seeks us where we're at. Now the key word in this passage is the word kindness in verse 1. It's repeated in verse 7. In the Hebrew, this word is chesed, which is usually translated loving kindness. It points to God's loyal, unconditional, unfailing love. It's related to another Hebrew word, chasadah, which is the Hebrew word for stork. Do you ever wonder why when we have babies we talk about the stork bringing the baby? Well, the answer is because the Hebrews observed the exceptional love and care which the stork demonstrated toward its young. When the stork would have a little stork, it would go to the tallest fir tree and build a nest up there. Other animals would abandon their young, but the stork would never do that. It would show unfailing love to those ugly, gawking little storks. And the Hebrews looked at that and said, that's the way God's love is. He loves us unconditionally. He loves us even though we don't deserve it. As Lane sang earlier, it's a love just because, not a love with conditions. Now before we leave this first point, I want you to notice one other thing. David asked the question in verse 1, is there anyone? Mark that. He doesn't say, is there anyone qualified? He doesn't say, is there anyone worthy? He just says, is there anyone? That's the way grace is. Grace is not conditioned on our worthiness. It's found in the person of God. Is there anyone? And when Ziba informs David in verse 3, probably with a twinge of warning in his voice, he is crippled in both feet, David doesn't ask the question, well, how crippled is he? Does he just walk with a limp? Or, I mean, is he completely crippled? Because I, I really don't want a guy around here who's totally useless. No, he doesn't ask that question. Ziba says he's crippled in both feet. And what does David say? David says, where is he? That's grace. He's crippled. He's helpless. He can't do anything for himself. And David says, where is he? Because grace seeks us where we are. Second principle. Grace brings us into the king's presence. Notice verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now notice that again. David sent and brought him. I love that part of the story. David doesn't send a messenger and say, can you crawl to Jerusalem? You think you can swim across the Jordan River with your crippled leg? No. He sent for him and he brought him. You see, grace not only seeks us where we are, grace carries us to where we need to be. And notice verse 6. 
Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, Here is your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Now when Mephibosheth is brought into the palace, he displays two attitudes. Attitude number one is fear because he knows that he deserves to be killed. And so David's response to him in verse 7 is, do not fear. You've got nothing to be afraid of. I'm going to show you kindness. But his second attitude is humility because he knows that he doesn't deserve any blessings. In fact, he falls on his face and calls himself, in verse 8, a dead dog, questioning why David would have any regard for him. And I want to suggest to you today that that is the attitude that grace responds to. James chapter 4 and verse 6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. Mephibosheth falls on his face and says, I'm just a dead dog. I don't deserve any regard from the king. And what does he get? He gets grace. And David responds to Mephibosheth by giving him three things, which are three things that Jesus gives to each of us. Number one is the king's forgiveness. David said, Mephibosheth, your grandfather hated my guts and he spent his life trying to kill me, but I'm not going to hold that sin against you. Instead, David says in verse 7, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Did you catch that? David says, I'm not doing this, Mephibosheth, for your sake. I'm doing it for the sake of your father, Jonathan, because we loved each other. In fact, in 1 Samuel 20, verses 13 to 17, we read that David had made a covenant with Jonathan to take care of his family. So he says to Mephibosheth, I'm doing this for your father's sake. Kent and Jackie came up here from Texas to be at Michelle's shower this afternoon. Now, I'm sure that they have always thought she was a nice girl, and I'm sure they've always liked her, but I can't imagine that would be enough to have them come from Texas to be at her shower this afternoon. You see, the key is that she married their son. And at that point, she was accepted as their daughter. So they have come here to be at the shower because of Noah. Now, I'm sure you've been married long enough that now they sort of accept Noah because of Michelle. But see, it's for, her, it's for his sake. She's his wife, and now she's their daughter. And that's what God says to us. He says, I'm going to forgive you for the sake 
of my Son, Jesus. God has forgiven you for Christ's sake. I love the way the King James puts it in Ephesians 1.6. It says, He has made us accepted in the Beloved. God accepts us crippled feet and all because of His Son. And then the second thing He gives to Mephibosheth and to each of us is the King's fortune. Notice the rest of verse 7. And I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. Gives him all the land that Saul had. And then look at verse 9. Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Now how many servants did this amount to? Well, look at the end of verse 10. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So he's got all the land of Saul and he's got 35 servants working the land, planting seed, growing the crops, putting them in barns, stockpiling, all this stuff. But that's not all. Look at the end of verse 7. And you shall eat at my table regularly. Middle of verse 10. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. He's got all this land and all this crop, these crops and all these servants working the land. He's got all this food coming in. And every day, he goes and he eats at the king's table. Now, I would have to say that's a little more than he needed. He's got all these crops coming in. He really doesn't even need them. Because every day, he gets to go into David's table and eat his meals. And I would suggest to you that that's the way grace is. God doesn't give us what, he, what we need. He gives us far more than we could ever use. The English preacher Roland Hill once received a large amount of money from a generous man to pass on to a poor minister, and he, he decided that if he gave him the whole lump sum, it would blow the guy away. He wouldn't know how to handle it. So he sent him five pounds with a note that said, more to follow. Then he waited a while and sent him five more pounds with a note that said, more to follow. And he did that over and over again. He kept getting five pounds with a note that said, more to follow. And this minister got great encouragement that, of, the, of the way the Lord was providing for him, and it reminded him of the grace of God because that's the way God's grace is. God gives it to us, and he says, more to follow. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I love John 1.16. It says, For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. 
Some of you have gone to the beach this summer. Others are going to go to the beach this summer. When you get to the beach, sit on the beach and let a wave hit you. And what happens after a wave hits you? It, it goes out and another wave hits you. And another wave hits you. And another wave hits you. And they never stop. And that's the way it is with the grace of God. His grace is grace upon grace upon grace. It's limitless to you and me. Annie Johnston Flint puts it this way, His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. But out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. We have received the King's fortune. Thirdly, Mephibosheth received the King's family. David gives him not only his forgiveness and his fortune, but he gives him his family. And this is the best of all. Look at the end of verse 11. It says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Now, of course, we have it even better than that. We don't just eat at the table as if we were one of the king's sons. We are the king's sons. 1 John 3, 1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. He ate every day at King David's table. And of course, in the Bible times, when you ate a meal with someone, it wasn't just scarf it down and run. They ate at the meal and they fellowshiped at the table. They talked at the table. That's why Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. What's the idea? He'll have communion with us. He'll have fellowship with us. That's what Mephibosheth enjoyed with the king every day. Now, can you see this picture? There's this huge banquet table in the palace dining room. It's loaded with fruit and bread and meats and vegetables. It's got more food than you could ever imagine eating. David walks into the room and he sits at the head of the table. He's the king. Out of another door walks the king's son, Amnon. He was in line to be next to the throne, but he kind of messed up. He didn't make it. He comes in and sits at the table. Then Solomon comes in. I mean, Solomon's got to be a little intimidating if you start a conversation with him. He's been reading scrolls and studying all day. This is the smartest guy in the world. He sits down at the table. And then in struts Absalom. Absalom is so handsome. He's got long, dark, wavy hair. And he kind of struts in and he sits down at the table. And there's one chair left at the table. And across the room, you hear this sound. Clop, shuffle, clop, shuffle, clop, shuffle, clop, shuffle. And Mephibosheth is coming into the room. And he comes over to that last chair. And he sits in that last chair. And I know I'm looking at this from a 21st century vantage point. But I imagine that when he sits down at the table, he gets to put his crippled legs underneath the table. And when he's sitting down, he looks like everybody else around the table. You see, the king's table covers his crippled legs. And I think that's a picture of you and me. The blood of Jesus Christ 
covers up all those things in your past that have crippled you. God's grace brings us into the King's presence and we are given the King's forgiveness, the King's fortune, and the King's family. Or if you want to look at it a different way, these are the ABCs of grace. A, acceptance. B, blessings. C, communion with the King. And then the third principle. Grace keeps us until the King's return. Now to see this, we're going to have to turn over to the sequel to this story. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 19. You remember that David's son Absalom rebelled against his father and David was forced to flee Jerusalem. Mephibosheth had planned to go with him all along, but Ziba deceived him and left without him. And then Ziba told David that the reason Mephibosheth didn't come is because he was hoping to regain the throne. He was hoping that with David and Absalom in a civil war that somehow they would kill each other off and he would get back to the throne. And that was a lie. But without all the facts, David hastily gave Mephibosheth's land to Ziba. Now you can read about that. We won't take the time. But you can read about that in chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. But what I want to do is fast forward to chapter 19. David has fled Jerusalem and now he returns and he's restored as king. And Mephibosheth comes out to meet him. And I want to suggest to you that this is a great picture of us. We have received God's grace, but our king has been rejected by the world. And so we find ourselves waiting for the return of the king. And I want you to notice two things about Mephibosheth that ought to be true about us. Number one, he was living loyally in David's absence. Notice verse 24. Then Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had neither cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. Did you get that? Mephibosheth is not living it up while the usurper was on the throne. He was not living it up while David was in rejection. He is the picture of a mourner. He didn't take care of his feet. He didn't trim his mustache. He didn't even wash his clothes. In a sense, he is fasting until the king returns. You see, Mephibosheth's heart was loyal to David and his lifestyle reflected it. Right now, our king is absent from this earth and a usurper, the ruler of this world, is temporarily on the throne. But a day is coming when that usurper will be overthrown and the King of kings and Lord of lords will come back. The question I want to ask you is, in his absence, does your life reflect the fact that you are loyal to him? Are you living it up while the usurper is on the throne or are you living loyally in Jesus' absence? And then the second thing we see about him, he was living longingly for David's presence. Notice verse 25. It was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? 
So he answered, O my lord the king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king because your servant is lame. Ziba deceived me. He said he was making a donkey I could ride on, but he didn't and he left without me and I'm lame so I couldn't do it myself. Verse 27, Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. He told you lies about why I didn't go. But, he says, my lord the king is like the angel of God Therefore, do what is good in your sight. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who ate at your own table. What right do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king? And so the king said to him, Why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Now, it's hard to figure out exactly what David is saying here. Some people think he's saying, well, go back to the previous arrangement. You'll own the land and Ziba will cultivate it. Or he may be saying, I really don't have all the facts, so I'm just going to divide the land between you and Ziba. Some people suggest that he was kind of doing what Solomon would later do with the baby, the two ladies that said it was their baby. And he's saying, well, you guys just divide the land. And he was trying to find out what was in Mephibosheth's heart. Regardless of how you take that, I think what's important is Mephibosheth's response in verse 30. Notice what he says. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him even take it all. He can have all the land since my lord the king has come safely to his own house. Don't you love that? He says he can have all the land because all that ever mattered to me was to have you back. Is that how you're responding in the absence of the king? Can you say, all I really want is Jesus? You can have the goodies, you can have the rewards, you can have the golden streets and the pearly gates. I want the presence of the king. I want to see him face to face. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 73, where in verses 25 and 26 it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What's my portion? It's not a, it's not a mansion in heaven. It's not even heaven itself. What is my portion? It's the Lord. And Mephibosheth says, he can have the goodies. He can have the land. He can have the crops. All I want is the king. Grace seeks us where we're at. Born in the wrong family, crippled by a fall, living in a barren land. Grace brings us into the king's presence where we get the king's forgiveness, the king's fortune, and the king's family. And grace keeps us until the king returns, living loyally in his absence 
and living longingly for His presence. The hymn writer put it this way, Take the world, but give me Jesus. In His cross my trust shall be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord I see. You know who wrote that hymn? Fanny Crosby wrote that hymn in 1879. Now, if you're not familiar with Fanny Crosby, you ought to get familiar with her because she was blind. When she was six weeks old, she had a problem with her eyes and they took her to the doctor and the regular doctor was out of town, so a guy who was really just faking as a doctor put some kind of medicine in her eyes that caused her to go blind for the rest of her life. And she wrote numerous hymns that we sing today. But I think the most impressive thing I've ever seen that she wrote was this. She said, if I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind. For when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. Wow. That's a woman who understood grace. And that's a woman who was longing for the return of her Lord. We should be more that way. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for the example of David and Mephibosheth and how it reminds us of our relationship to You. And Father, I just pray today that in this glimpse in the Old Testament that we would truly see Your grace in a fresh way today and really appreciate in You what You have done for us. And Father, if there are those here today who have never received Your grace by simple faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be their day to come into that relationship. For those of us who are in that relationship, I pray that we would truly be like Mephibosheth when David was ousted out of Jerusalem, that he lived as a mourner, longing to see the King again. And Father, I pray that that would be truly the way we live our lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.